0: This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Hi, everyone. Welcome. It is um, the weekend after the Democratic Convention. Uh, Technically, I am recording this on Friday, July 29th. It is almost August. And um, yeah, (laughs) it's almost August. What? Like, like, you know, just right around the corner is Thanksgiving. Just just saying. Uh, I hope you're all well. Uh, The country made it through both conventions without um, anybody um, being shot. (laughs) Well, people were shot in America, of course, because it's America. But uh, nobody was shot at the conventions, which, you know, that's really a very sad thing that I'm even saying that. But I did worry about that a bit. We all did, right? First in Ohio with the open carry thing, and then in Philadelphia, with just I don't know, tons of protesters, lots of um, lots of progressives protesting. Um, so yeah, we made it through. It's very exciting, and uh, and I'm I'm kind of happy that I had Steve McIntosh on last week, and he will be on again this week. We will finish up our interview, the second half of the interview here today, and uh, can't imagine two better weeks to really hold the space of what Steve's talking about as far as. Uh, a different way to look at American politics, a different filter to look at it through, through these value systems of, um, uh, you know, th- worldviews that he discusses. And I have to tell you, after interviewing him last week, just watching the um, Republican convention right away after interviewing him, it really helped me, like, see so clearly, like, these different main um Big pools of people in America, you know the traditionalists and the and the and the modern, you know the liberty values and the the modernists and the progressives and the you know it was just it's just it's great you know it's just it helped me have a lot less anxiety. Um, and uh, the Democratic convention was very <laughs> exciting and entertaining and fantastic. I'm just so happy that uh, Bernie Sanders pushed the Democratic Party to uh, a, a beautiful progressive place on the platform. Um, you know, I used to watch these um, conventions and read the platform and think, oh, please, you know. And look, I know Hillary is a hawk and she's got some issues absolutely, fucking lutely but she's not changing. She is who she is. But for the platform to hold what it is, um, and for her speech last night, I'm talking about this on Friday morning, uh, it could have been Bernie Sanders' speech. I mean, it really could have been on many levels, uh, So, especially all the policy stuff. So um, I know that probably scared the bejeevuses out of a lot of conservatives, but um, uh, they were so enamored with Obama's speech on Wednesday night that, um, you know, maybe they didn't hear the policy stuff. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe they'll join us. Um I was uh, excited for Sarah Silverman to speak. And uh, I know she's getting a lot of flack online. Um, As you know, I'm on Instagram. And uh, I just saw a couple of her pictures on Instagram and saw the just, you know, I saw that there were 500 comments and I saw one or two that basically said sell out. And I thought, okay, all right, well, those are the idealists. And, um, you know, there's a part of me that's an idealist. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I'm a you know a big Noam Chomsky fan. <laughs> this man speaks truth to power. I love everyone who speaks truth to power. Uh, but um, Hillary Clinton's the nominee, and Trump is the only other real candidate. And I voted for Ralph Nader. I mean, I live in California, and it doesn't matter who I vote for because the Democratic nominee always you know gets the votes of California. But I voted for Ralph Nader um, in um, 2000, and I regret it. I do because uh boy, eight years of Bush was not was not a good time, was not a good time for this country, and even four days of Donald Trump would be more horrific. so um, <laughs> I thought Sarah did what she does. she looked beautiful, she was smart, and she was ballsy, and that's what she does so well. Um, so I was really proud of her, and some of you might be yelling at me right now at the podcast, but That's Okay. That's totally fine. I totally fucking get it. Um, But um, the minute you walk out your door, you're a sellout because um, that's the way the world works. Uh, Nothing is pure. Nothing is free of compromise. And yes, we have a lot to fix. We do. And but we have the best chance of fixing it with a Democrat in the presidential uh, position and um, hopefully a Democratic Senate. All right. Enough of my politics. Um, A couple of things I didn't mention last week. Well, one thing I didn't mention last week was the passing of Gary Marshall. And um, I just want to say that Gary holds a special place in my heart. I, uh, last year, uh, in February of 2015, as many of you know, did my solo show at the Falcon Theater, which Gary founded and built. He didn't build it with his own two hands, but you know what I mean. And he welcomed me. His daughter, Kathleen, produced uh, co-produced my my show, and that family welcomed me into their theater family. and Gary was gracious and loving and would come and hug me and tell me how brilliant I was, which you know, for, with a girl for a girl with daddy issues, it doesn't get any better than that, really. <laughs> Trust me. So it was just so sad to hear that Gary. That Gary died, and um, another Gary with two R's. You know, really, really, guys. Um, but the difference between Gary Shandling and Gary Marshall is that Gary Marshall was eighty something, and um, my God, had lived an incredible life. In fact, um, I got to interview him, and my interview with him will be up on Sirius XM. They'll be playing it live. Um, not this Sunday. The what well, this Sunday would be, but I believe the following Sunday of August... I'm going to say 8th. That was my noise. That was a weird noise. Uh, And then we'll be playing it on Carlin's Corner. And then I think it's on demand. I think my shows are on demand now, so if you're a SiriusXM subscriber and you can't listen live, I think my stuff's uh, on demand. It should be demanding it. Damn it. I should demand that it's on demand. Uh, All right. Uh, The other thing I want to mention is... Oh, just something so sweet right now. So in my little podcast studio, by the way, I'm here by myself this week. Logan is um, doing some work somewhere else, and I'm just recording my little intro here and then handing it off to Logan, which he will put all the pretty pieces together. But in now in my out in my back studio where I do my podcast, I have two chairs. And these two chairs are very special because these two chairs are the very chairs that Gary Shandling and I sat in for my very first podcast. They are from his office in his home and I am privileged enough to have received them. And, uh, so Gary Shandling is forever in the house here out in the studio and, uh, it's a great honor. So whether I'm doing my podcast or doing my sitting meditation, it's the same space I do, all of that. Uh, Gary's here. It's really nice. And before, um, Before Sarah went on stage on the convention, uh, you know, she was very close to Gary. Also, also I sent her a picture of the chairs to say um, Gary's watching, too. It was sweet. But now to Steve McIntosh. Uh, Last week we had Steve on. If you're not familiar with Steve, I highly recommend you um, pause this podcast and go back to last week's podcast and listen to what we talked about. But I will um, give you a little introduction here. Steve McIntosh is a philosopher, an integral philosopher, and um, he runs uh, the Institute of Cultural Evolution, and he's very interested in how people's worldviews and perspectives evolve. As you know, something I'm very interested in. He's written a bunch of articles about this, especially the polarization of uh, American um, politics, and um, the partisanship, the hyper partisanship, he calls it. And, um, and, he t- and he also writes about the future left and the future right in this country and what it will evolve to. It's very, uh, some would say it's extremely ideal because it's about uh, evolving consciousness, and that's always an ideal <laughs> in the world. Uh, but it's also really pragmatic stuff. And uh, so I was really excited to have him on the show last week. And we did enough of an interview that we could parse it into two parts. And so I believe this half is about the future of the left and the future of the right, and, uh, and a little bit more than that. Um, so enjoy. You've talked about this new right and what it may look like. Um, what might this new left look like? I mean, you know, we've got we've got Bernie coming out into the world and and shaking up the Democratic establishment, and um, the the Democratic Party seems to be in a, in a little healthier state and able to, um, you know, kind of include uh, some some of his his ideas and, and include him, and and it's you know, but the the establishment. Uh, candidate is is uh, the one who's going to be the nominee. So, um, what is what does this new left look like, and what does it have to kind of transcend and evolve to? Sure. Well,
1: first of all, let me say that that um, I admire Bernie Sanders. He's sort of the anti-Trump, and that he has integrity. <laughs> you know, he cares. Yes. He's you know he, he's not a narcissist. He's you know. Sanders is is an admirable figure, and I'm proud yep. of him for doing what he's done um, in in energizing the youth and uh, standing up, you know, for the middle class in the right way, mm. you know, in the way that 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 Trump only pretends to do. Um, but at the same time, Bernie Sanders is an authentic postmodernist, right? He, you know, he came out of the '60s counterculture, and he's championed um, many of the values, what I call liberation values. Uh, which are uh, are the values of the of pro- the this progressive postmodern worldview that's in antithesis to the larger society, and so w- you can see this. I talked about the polarity on the left and the polarity on the right. Right, the polarity between Hillary Clinton, who represents liberal modernism, you know, the establishment, and Bernie Sanders. Even though not all of his constituents are postmodern, right? Some of them are just middle class people who are sort of more unionists or
2: whatever. Mm-hmm.
1: But but I think Bernie himself is, is an authentic postmodern candidate and there are interesting tensions in that polarity between, you know, the countercultural left and, and the establishment left that haven't been resolved. And um, I, I think part of that involves um, you know the downsides of, of postmodernism. Like so, for example, there there there's emerged maybe not, you know, Bernie, but but many of the heroes of the postmodern left events what can be characterized as a kind of reverse patriotism Right mm-hmm. where where there's a a, a dim view of America. America's kind of characterized as something akin to a criminal enterprise. Right, it can <laughs> yes. do no wrong. Right, it can do no right. It can do no right. Yeah, see, yeah, yeah. You can see um, characters like uh, you know some of them are Marxists, some of them are anarchists. But you know Noam Chomsky, Chris Hedges,
0: uh, my father, you know, even Amy Goodman.
1: <laughs> right? these are extreme leftists. Now yes. again, they're not all wrong. <laughs> Part of this integral philosophy is that everybody has a piece of the truth. Yep. Right? it's not a thesis of relativism that that it's all. Equal, right? But there's ways in which, uh, you know, Noam Chomsky has a point, sure. right? That is, it's important for us as as mature citizens to face the crimes that America has uh, perpetrated in the past and the ongoing um, uh, ways in which our policies are are not as moral as they could be, right? So there's there's a clear room for dissent. Yep, but. In the same way that old-fashioned patriotism can build identity and strong political will and kind of become uh, jingoistic, you know, in its own way, I mean, Mm. patriotism has a downside... Reverse patriotism also becomes uh, an identity that can build political will and can be very one-sided. So there there are many ways in which you see it in the environmental movement too, like um, you know Bill McKibben or, or Naomi Klein. You know again, who have important things to say. Right? They're not all wrong, but their attitude is just say no to modernity, right? Just say no to the economic needs of the larger society in a way that. Well, one way to dramatize it is around Boulder in Colorado where I live I see bumper stickers that say you know visualize industrial collapse right <laughs> and, and that's funny you know, no thank ha, you ha, ha, you know, we, we, you know we, we, it's destroying the environment so we need to get rid of capitalism right. I understand the argument But, of course, if there was industrial collapse, it would be, uh, you know, a a worldwide catastrophe equivalent to, you know, some of the worst periods of human history in the past. So, you know, it it, it may be sardonic to visualize industrial collapse, but if we're going to be responsible and we really care about people and care about them, you know, being fed, then the last thing we want is for modernity to collapse. We want to, from an evolutionary perspective we'd like to build on capitalism by making it more conscious mm-hmm. we'd like to you know get america to have a more moral foreign policy but our ability to influence these these systems in positive ways is severely curtailed if our approach to them is that they're corrupt from you know from inside out and that they're that they need to be destroyed or right. you know roundly condemned with no hope of their reform
0: yeah yeah, well said. And and you know, I mean, I'm a person who, I mean, my dad's George Carlin. I mean, my dad railed <laughs> against all of this stuff and yeah, right. yet my dad loved his Apple products. <laughs> Right. There's definitely
1: a degree of hypocrisy, uh, among the anti capitalists
0: Yeah. You know, and he wasn't, he wasn't a fool. He knew that, you know, you walk out your door and it's a slippery slope, you know, there's, I mean, there's no, there's compromise everywhere and that, you know, it it really is a line, um, you know, and, and for me, I, I mean, I have a great love for this country and, and what it stands for and its potential and its possibility and those ideals that were written in that document by the founding fathers, um, and mothers, uh, whispering in their ear and you know it's taken me time to be able to you know sometimes in certain groups you don't want to say that out loud because you get that look from people like you know oh you you know oh you're ignorant or you're you know you're just drinking the kool-aid or something and and you look at people like you know it's it's really okay to criticize this place and love it and its potential at the same time you know it's and so it's it's kind of scary for some of us who whether we're more integral or this some other kind of left place there, you know, where we hold multiple perspectives about this. Um, the people on the, the far, these progressive postmodernists, you know, can be a little strident and a little hard to talk to about this stuff.
1: Sure. Well, and that goes back to your question of what is what's the future of the left? And for lack of a better term, I would describe it as post-postmodern. You know, in other <laughs> words, to, to transcend the antithesis by reclaiming, you know, that, that, uh, understanding that just condemning the rest of the society isn't going to get us very far, and that we're actually standing on the shoulders of, of these folks, and that, um, and that allowing for the compromises that are going to be able to integrate the best of what's come before. So I think that the future of the left will be global in a new way, not global in a way that condemns, condemns um, globalization and the you know the, the capitalist system that is lifting millions out of poverty, even as it exploits people. And you know there, there's all kinds of dark sides to globalizing mm. capitalism. That yep. indeed, uh, the only solution to the, to the dark side of globalization is some kind of global law. Now you know, global law is is its own, you know, horrifying specter to many, I mean, for good reasons, right? (laughs) I mean, you know, the American government is scary enough, right? Think about a global government, that would be, you know, an Orwellian nightmare, right? So, so I'm sympathetic to that. But I do think that eventually there will be some kind of limited democratic global law that protects the commons, you know, that, that, mm. that protects uh, the weakest, you know, and, and that uh, sort of forestalls this race to the bottom that we see in, in many developing countries yeah. economically. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that uh, can sprout out of um, a national politics, but can begin to evince a more world-centric morality that's not just... In, you know, aspirational. It's not just. I mean, like, so for example, I, I talked about global law with some like new age colleagues, you know, and they say, well, we don't need global law. We need just need global compassion. You know, and and indeed, I agree that the global compassion would solve everything if we could manifest it. <laughs> yes. But in the meantime, we have this evolving human nature where humanity <laughs> spread out over the last five thousand years of evolution, and so the only thing that's really been shown to to overcome law and malfeasance, overcome war and malfeasance, is law. Right. right. Some, you know, some legitimate, democratically enacted version of it, and so eventually, we're going to need that um, for at least some elements, like the oceans, you know, or the atmosphere, where it's a global commons and no nation owns it. Yep. Um, you know, some kind of laws that, that have democratic legitimacy are in the future, and I think that um, the future of the left in America may able be, be able to actually start embracing those issues in a politically viable way.
0: Well, and, and it, one of the things I find in, that I really uh, it was, was challenged by at first when I was reading some of these articles was that, you know you've put the responsibility on the left because you're like they're they're on the cutting edge of evolution and and they're the ones who need to step up and evolve this into this post postmodern position. And so, you know, as some of my listeners and most of them I'm guessing are progressive postmodernists for the most part, you know, what is it about that worldview and and I certainly hold it much of the time, that what can we do as individuals to sit with our values and to um you know, to embrace, you know, like you were saying, to kind of um, expand our value system in order to, to help evolve it.
1: Sure. Well well, there's many ways that one can approach raising their consciousness. Um, but, but I think the things that, that really animates your work and my work is the opportunity for um, a, a new and more inclusive set of values that is emerging now in history, right? In other words, throughout history, humans have been trying to improve their conditions, and though, you know, what counts as improvement is dependent upon the values of your worldviews, right? Like, so in tribal settings, you know, appeasing the gods and, and you know, preventing the enemies from attacking, these you kind know, of improved defense, improved, you know, sacrifice, improved supplication, <laughs> right. these were ways that, that improving things were defined, right? And then... Throughout history there have been times when then breakthroughs have been made uh, new forms of, of culture have emerged but when people have improved their definition of improvement itself mm. right a wider horizon of what could be better right so this has occurred and we see this sort of structure of emergence just like in biological evolution where the, you know there's new emergences that keep building and taking up what happened before we see this in cultural evolution too so in the sixties, you know, we could probably trace it all the way back to the transcendentals, but but a new definition of improvement emerged, right, that included these new progressive, uh, inclusive values, and that was an improvement in what counts as improvement, right? You know, we're going to have diversity. We're going to have environmental... Uh, concern. You know, all of these really important breakthroughs in, in our understanding of what's good, true, and beautiful occurred with the emergence of postmodernism, and that's still occurring because, you know, postmodernism is only 20% of America and, and a much smaller percentage of the world overall, but people are continuing to be pulled into that worldview. And one of the ways we can see this, all the impo- important achievements of postmodernism come to greater fruition in the society is by going one step beyond the postmodern, you know, beyond the counterculture, to to a, an even wider definition of what counts as improvement, mm. right? Because we could, this internal perspective can do what the postmodern perspective can't, and that is integrate the previous values in a more inclusive way, right? So we can reach back and include heritage values without, uh, you know, regressing to become, you know, fundamentalist or something. We can include right. modernist values without becoming. You know those who are only concerned about status and material right we can we can carry forward progressive values without wanting to condemn the rest of the society so we're we're participating in, a, in an evolutionary emergence of a new form of culture that is able to um, value more and therefore because it's more inclusive it's also more transcendent and you know these are abstract philosophical terms, but right. they have real political implications when we think about how we can overcome one of the chief problems of our age, which is hyper-partisan polarization.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A- a- absolutely. It's, um, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's so, it just... Uh, It makes me feel safer in the world to know that people like you are thinking about stuff like this. Well, so so let me just answer the second
1: part of your question. How can people get more involved, right? Yeah. The the way I like to compare this is to, Compare it to previous cultural emergences, right? So if you were in Paris in, you know, 1680, and you you knew, if you were able to look down on history and say there's enlightenment occurring, right? There's new -hmm. new forms of uh, the new truths of science, the new truths of philosophy, the new moral ideals of democracy you know, classical music, there's all these, uh, an eventual industrial revolution, there, there are, there's an emergent new form of culture that's a new worldview that breaks with the medieval worldview of the past. How would you participate in that? Well, you know, you'd go to the coffeehouse and have discussions with the other, you know, Enlightenment types, but you'd also read Locke and Descartes. And, and it, the, the thing that's emerging first is a kind of a new truth. And just like the Enlightenment of 350 years ago, this emergence of the integral is a kind of a second Enlightenment, right? And so how do you participate? Well, you imbibe the new truth. And that doesn't mean, I mean, it means reading the books and the articles and and familiarizing, you know, the podcasts, you know, the videos, (laughs) uh, uh, taking in all the the integral media that's out there, but not only, you know, taking the values in, but also giving the values out. You know, value metabolism, if you will, occurs Mm -hmm. when you not only take in value, but also give out that value by, uh, you know, uh, teaching your parents about this perspective, or writing a blog about it, or, or creating art that, that that reflects the feeling that goes with participating in a Second Enlightenment. There's all kinds of ways people can get involved with the integral worldview, um, and certainly your website and my website are, are a good place to start.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think also, you know, there's, there's some personal work to be done here, too, you know, this you know, we all, those of us who are involved in personal evolution and working on ourselves, and, you know, I talk a lot about that on this podcast and in my life. It's a big part of my life as, you know, figuring out where the shadow is inside of me and, and what I, what voices I need to talk with and who needs to come forward and what have I put in the basement and, you know, why am I so triggered by A, B, and C? And, you know, there's there's something about you know, it's for me, it's like, I I talk about it, like put up your putting on your grown up pants. You know, it (laughs) really, it really feels like a time as a citizen. It's like, it's time for us to put on our grown up pants. Look what's going on in our country. You know, what, watching this GOP convention, you know, chanting, um, you know, she must be in prison, Hillary must go to jail. I mean, it's like, okay, I know you think that, but that's not a GOP convention. Like what's going on here? And it's so, it's like, it's time for conversation now, people. And, and so, but you have to put your own house in order too. And so I highly recommend for people to go and check out Steve's website and some of these articles. And you've got these great charts here with the values and, and, you know, and if you're interested in talking about this or want to know more about it, you can email me at radio at gmail.com. And I can point you in some directions. And um, I, I'm looking to have more conversations about this. It really feels like it's very ripe for me. It's something I've been studying. I've been studying this stuff for about 10 years now. And yet there's something going on in the zeitgeist and within myself that it's like, I feel like I can help to usher along this conversation and, and, and make it more public. So I'm, I'm excited about facilitating that in some way. Um, And before I let you go, I just wanted to just get your take on this thing that's happening on the left, uh, which you don't talk about much. You talk a little bit about it, but there's this whole thing, this thing it's called the regressive left that some people on the left are talking about. And it's this, it's this PC culture where it seems to be shutting down freedom of expression, and it's happening on campuses, but it's also happening around. Uh, Bill Bill Maher is a great example of that. He's he's not a regressive left. He's someone who talks about the you know Islam in a way, and 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 be you know that he talks about all of Islam and that there's some aspects to it that are really really scary and bad. And he's not Islamophobe because of it. He's just. Talking about the facts, and yet there's some people on the left who immediately want to shut that down and want to, you know, you just think of the Ben Affleck uh, conflict on the Bill Maher show with that. And mm-hmm. I wanted to know a little bit about your take on that from an integral perspective and and what you see there and how it fits into all that we've been talking about today. Because I've been very involved with my friend Dave Rubin, who's got a great show called The Rubin Report, and he's really been bringing all people from all parts of the spectrum onto his show to talk. he's He really is an integral person because he's really interested in every perspective and trying to find the good or or the, 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 the valuable in each thing. Um, but he's being lambasted with death threats and all sorts of things, mostly from the left. So I just want to know your take on this.
1: Sure. I, I, I have to kind of approach this important question kind of philosophically.
0: yes. And that is, in
1: almost every human situation, there are strains of what Plato identified, you know, 2,500 years ago as tyrannical eros, you know, the the, the the need of humans to kind of dominate others, right? And, and even people who have relatively mature cultural viewpoints can be succumbed to this kind of tyrannical eros to want to, to sort of control other people and, and be tyrannical in their in their suppression of that which they don't like. Another way of understanding how we can see this on college campuses, for example, is that when when any new worldview or new system emerges, you know it, it first emerges uh, as as a, uh, a a synthesis. You know, a, a, it 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 moves beyond what came before. You know, it has this kind of it pushes off against what came before as an as an antithesis. Then there's a season of synthesis where it's getting its work done and at it's at its peak. Prime time, but then as, as it as it goes through time, it starts to decay a little bit and becomes more of a stale thesis of itself. And and when when the, the dynamism of a movement's emergence begins to stall out, you get um, you get sort of the pathologies begin to appear. And those pathologies uh, keep the system this dialectical progression that I've been talking about going. Right. So so one of the ways we can identify. Um, you know the tyranny of of the PC people on campus is as a kind of peak leftism, if you will. In other words, the mm. the sailboat is beginning to tack. that we've gone as far as we can, making progress in that direction, at least you know some parts are still entering some parts are exiting but but as, as the the postmodern worldview kind of reaches its maximum extension it starts to go beyond itself it starts to become full of itself in a way that it, it, it's it's kind of a power grab yep. and and that's a trigger that that you know the, another way of describing this thesis antithesis synthesis is like a sailboat sailing against the wind it can't sail directly into the wind it has to advance obliquely so it sails to one side as far as it can and then attacks, you know, when it goes in the other direction, you can see the same thing in a river meandering in a floodplain, and it's going back and forth. So we've gone as far as we can, at least, you know, in academia, with postmodernism, and now this signals a chance to say, look, th- th- there's craziness, there's this, you know, um, uh, oppression and, and, you know, political tyranny in a way that that points to the, the, the new heading of the sailboat that mm-hmm. can sail away from that toward a direction of more inclusive freedom.
0: Yeah. One thing I was, I was reading some Neil Howe, who wrote the book, The Fourth Turning in Generations, another interesting overview of human history and things like that, and American history in particular. And, he was, you know, I think he, I think he and his partner came up with the term millennials. And um, one of the things that's happening ar- around this stuff on college campuses specifically, is this protection of um Feelings and these safe zones and 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 people's people's ability to protect themselves from trauma, and I'm wondering if this inner life, this this need to protect the the inner life values, on some level, is trying to emerge in some way, and it's just doing it in a really really clunky way. You know that there's there's something about because you know with integral there is an appreciation and an inclusion of this. Subjective aspect of self and the importance of it, and and in you know in some ways we've we've kind of lost that through through modernism. And I'm wondering if this is kind of the part of evolution, kind of doing a clunky emergence thing going on here.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, as humans, uh, we have a tendency to push things too far. You know, make too much of a good thing, right? So, so this postmodern world that we've been talking about, one of the ways forward that it, that w- Created an avenue for its evolutionary advance was to push off against modernity's extreme rationality. Right, right. modernity could be hyper-rational. and so with the postmodern reclaimed feelings, emotions, sensitivity, the affective world in a way that modernity had had kind of crowded that out. Right, so that was a clear path of of a, how you can reclaim, you know, a, a more emotional worldview, and and that that led to um, a lot of positive progress in terms of our understanding ourselves psychologically, um, opening our hearts, being more compassionate, right? There's been a lot of gains that have been made by this um, emotional turn yes. uh, in, 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 you know, the evolution of culture. But of course, if you, if, 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 because these things are dynamic and, and they have to be, like, if, if you think about it, if we bring back this notion of polarities, when you have, for example, competition and cooperation as an example of an interdependent polarity where ideally one side needs to to rule the other. So when they work together, they can both produce maximum value. But if one side Eliminates the other pathology <laughs> can result,
0: right? right. So if, if,
1: if it's only cooperation and there's no competition, then individual excellence and individual autonomy and creativity can be stifled, right? right. If it's just competition without cooperation, it becomes doggy dog, right? So in academia, where postmodernism, at least in the humanities, has has been given free reign Mm -hmm. and has gone as far as it can go, it's pushed this emotional, you know, feeling orientation to the extremes to the point that it's become tyrannical.
0: Yes, yes. I I, I see that now. I I get it. That's the And so the polarity needs some
1: balance from the other side, and and they're not getting it because, you know, they live in an echo chamber there on (laughs) campus. Uh, And so, um, you know, that's why those of us on the outside can see that, uh, you know, that that polarity has gone too far and needs to be brought back into Relation to its natural polar ally.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that's great. That's a that's a great perspective on it, and uh, more more to come on that. Um, that. Yeah, maybe next time we can talk about the spiritual side of this. Yes, but, uh,
1: the two areas where I think this integral perspective can really um, help you know our evolution. One is in politics. So my work uh, with the Institute for Cultural Evolution Think Tank is focused on politics. But the other is in spirituality. And um, there, my work uh, centers around these books that I've written on um, evolutionary spirituality. So I'd love to talk to, to you about that sometime.
0: Uh, I would love to talk to you about the spiritual side of it because I have uh, just recently been um, doing some public speaking and been going to these secular humanist events. And there's something that I'm talking about that they're very interested in. And, um, you know, I definitely consider myself. Uh, integral when it comes to my spiritual life, and I've moved beyond. You know, I mean, I'm an atheist, but I have a spiritual life, and all of that, and it's very confusing for people, and so um, not confusing for me at all. What well, was for? A, it was for a while. I was I was in the mud about it for a while, but um, you got it all figured out. <laughs> well, I've I've actually found I found a conversation that wants to be had in that. Um, A a, a lot of people want to want to have in that community now, which is, you know, finding meaning and, and finding connection to the sacred and the numinous without it, without a God, you know, without God in the or sense... without
1: regressing to a mythic, without modern spirituality. A, a,
0: exactly, exactly. And and a lot of them don't, you know, some of them poo-poo the integral stuff because there is this talk of the word God and spiritual and things like that. And then, you know, they're, they're pure modernists, a lot of them, which is fine and great. And yet um, I did an experiential exercise with 5,000 people at the Reason Rally at the Washington, D.C. Mall, and I had them all connect through, uh, through, through their own value system to the numinous. And it was a profound experience for me. And it was a profound experience for many people in the audience. I think some of the atheists there were looking a little sideways at me, like, you know, what's this, what's going on here? But, um, but I know there's, there's, there's ripeness in all of this. And and it's been, it's been really, really cool for me. So definitely. Great job.
1: And people can have, spiritual experience even if they don't acknowledge that there's a thing called spirit. Ab- I mean it's it's, Absolutely. it's available to us as humans. It's our birthright. It's our birthright. But we don't have to call it spirit. We can call it the I mean, numinous is a great term. I use that in my book.
0: Yes. And um yes, and that's what I talked about. I said this is a human experience we're having. You know, this is this is this is hardwired in. If you want to talk about the objective part of it, yeah, your brain is doing something right now. And yet it's bringing meaning. So uh, yeah, it's, it's really cool. And I, I found this new lane with it and I'm really excited about it. So yes, that'll be our next big conversation will be about integral spirituality and, and moving beyond the, modern, the modernist position on that. So Steve, thank you so much for this. Um, I'm excited to be in more conversation with you and to maybe collaborate with, uh, on some events or something and, and really get this conversation going out there.
1: Great, Kelly. It's really been a pleasure. I feel like we're natural allies, and I look forward to um, working with you into the future.
0: Thank you so much, and we'll talk soon. Okay, Great. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye. So I hope you enjoyed uh, my uh, second half of my interview with Steve McIntosh. I uh, just wanted to give you a couple of updates on my schedule. Um, next week, um, August 5th through the 8th, I'm going to be in Jamestown, New York, hanging out mostly, but doing a panel. On Friday night, which is Friday the 6th, I believe, uh, with Rain Pryor and Kitty Bruce. Uh, So if you're in the western New York region or Erie, Pennsylvania, or any of those other fine areas near close enough to Chautauqua Lake that you want to come up and see us, uh, Rain and Kitty and I are going to be doing a lovely program talking about, obviously, the legacies of our fathers, um, their careers, their impact on us personally, and what we're up to in the world. And if you don't get a chance to do that, there is a um, interview with Kitty and Rain and I that was just posted the other day. I'm going to put it up on my Facebook page and my Twitter account today. I'll go on Hootsuite and do that. And um, it's from the foundation, it's called FIRE, F-I-R-E. And uh, it's just, just, just Google Kelly Carlin, Kitty Bruce, Rain Pryor interview, and it'll come up. And uh, it's about an hour-long interview with the three of us, and uh, it's pretty fucking cool. Pretty excited about it. So there's that. Uh, hope you're all well. Thank you all. Um, thank you. I got a donation last week, and I don't have the information in front of me because I'm really unorganized today, and it's Friday, and I'm sweating like a pig. And, um, but I want to put a shout-out to um, the lovely woman. I'll thank her next week or in two weeks um, for for sending me a donation. If anybody wants to donate, please go to my website, um, kellycarlin.com, and go to the Waking from the American Dream button, and you'll see a PayPal button there, and you can donate and support our efforts here. By the way, my new website should be up very soon. All right, that's all I have here. Thank you, Logan, for engineering this and putting this all together. And you guys all have a great week, and get out there and uh, stump for your favorite candidate, which I hope is not Trump. Love you.
3: When you're weary You're feeling small When tears are in Your eyes I will dry the ball I'm on your side times get rough and friends just can't be found like a bridge over troubled water I will I will lay me down. And when you're down and out, when you're on the street.